This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. I was on Stemmons Freeway earlier, and even the freeway was jam-packed with spectators waiting their chance to see the president as he made his way toward the trademark. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill alongside Elm Street, there by the Stimmons Freeway. Several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by just a moment, please. Something has happened in the motorcade route. Stand by, please. Parkland Hospital, there has been a shooting. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. I repeat, a shooting in the motorcade in the downtown area. Parkland Hospital has been advised to stand by for a severe gunshot wound. The president's car is... From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. It's time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And a welcome to the broadcast as we fast approach the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy, the 35th president, November 22nd, 1963. And uh, I know uh, we've been here on the program, we've been... uh, hammering this subject pretty hard uh, for most of the year, actually. I I believe we began our JFK series with James D. Eugenio uh, back in early spring. And uh, we just finished our uh, eighth and final episode with uh, with James uh, last week. And uh, here we are 
this is, of course, the uh, the closest we'll get to the actual anniversary date, so we're going to uh, discuss it, obviously, full bore. And then we'll uh, probably close the books on uh, JFK, uh, at least for the time being, unless there's something monumental that comes down the pipe in terms of uh, new evidence uh, or what have you. Uh, joining us in just a moment, well, before I, I, I introduce my guests, before I introduce my guests, let me uh, explain, just to give it a little context. I was born a little less than two months uh, after the assassination, January of 1964. Uh, you know, there's the old Dennis Miller joke about uh, you know, when you ask young people today, where were they when JFK was shot? They, they seem to think that you're talking about the Oliver Stone movie. Uh, where were you when the movie was shot? Uh, but my first and only trip to Dealey Plaza uh, came in August of 2012. And I was walking around uh, the uh, Dealey Plaza and then into the, uh, the Texas Book Depository building. And the phone rang. My cell phone rang. And who was it? Uh, but none other than legendary JFK researcher... Jim Mars, his book, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, along with uh, Garrison's uh, book, of course, uh, served as the basis for Oliver Stone's uh, movie, JFK, which many people look at as, you know, documentary truth. Uh, What had happened was I was down there to shoot a television episode for the conspiracy show, the TV program, and I was to meet up with Jim at his home in Texas, in uh, sort of outside the uh, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, and he was calling me just to confirm. So I mentioned, uh, you know, Jim, this is great that you called. I'm standing right here in Daly Plaza. And he proceeded to give me a guided tour on the phone while I'm walking around. And it was just a surreal moment uh, to have someone like Jim Mars. Uh, I remember walking, I was walking down uh, Elm Street. There's a little um, marker right on the curb, the exact spot, supposedly, where the fatal head wound um, occurred, Kennedy's uh, fatal head wound. And as I'm approaching that, uh, I'm, I'm explaining where I am, and Jim says, okay, stop, now turn around and uh, look over your shoulder. And so I did. I followed his instructions. I looked up to the sixth floor of the Texas Book Depository building, and he says, now do you, in that Texas drawl, do you see that tree there? And I said, yes, Jim, but that tree, we're talking 50 years ago, that tree would have been much shorter he was trying to convince me that there was no way Oswald could have had a cleaner shot from that from, from the sixth floor window because of the tree. And I said, but Jim, the tree would have been much smaller than he said. Oh, no, 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 no. That tree has been pruned back a couple of times. They, they pruned it back for the JFK movie and a, and, a, and a subsequent time. He said that tree looks just as it did 50 years ago. There's no way. And it's true. When you look at that tree in front of the building, there's, it's very hard to imagine that Oswald or anyone else would have had a clear shot from the window. He said, ah, but look across. Look across Houston. See that building in behind? That's the Dell Tech building. He said, that's where one of the gunmen was, were, and that's where they would have had a clean shot, and that made some sense. Uh, Jim Mars, as I mentioned, will be uh, joining us in just a moment. Again, uh, New York Times bestselling author, Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy. Uh, But before Jim joins us, Another old friend of the uh, program, who is a um, a noted JFK researcher in his own, um, uh, certainly in his own, on his own, and he is responsible for bringing the Zapruder film 
uh, to Canada, smuggling it across the Canada. This is in the early 70s, before it was first seen on national television with Geraldo Rivera. Uh, Nelson Thal uh, received a copy of the uh, Zapruder film from Penn Jones, another JFK researcher, brought it uh, brought it to Canada, arranged to have it, to have it played on a, a Canada-U.S. border station. Now, it, it wasn't broadcast, you know, to uh, during the, the day. This was when most of the stations had sort of signed off their broadcasting day. Uh, but they alerted a number of researchers at universities and elsewhere. This is in the days before, you know, VCRs, but people had the big... Uh, video recording machines, a few institutions would have those, and uh, they were alerted that the, the 26 seconds of the Zapruder film would be playing unannounced when the, the station signed off and that they were to hit the record buttons. And this is how the Zapruder film was first sort of distributed to, uh, to other uh, researchers. And uh, let's say hello to our good friend, the aforementioned Nelson Thal. Nelson, how are you? Very well. It's uh, it's an honor being here, Richard, and certainly a, a tremendous anniversary, 50 years. Amazing that a cover-up's been able to remain in place, and we'll talk a little bit about it later. Okay, and uh, we'll, um, uh, before I ask you, uh, let me ask you this right now before I get Jim on here. He's standing by. It's the question that everybody asks, everybody who is of a certain age. You've told me the story. It's quite interesting. As an assassination researcher, uh, you told me the, the, when, you, when you first learned of Kennedy's assassination. Do you remember that, the uh, being at school and a girl telling you? Yeah. yeah, we were told the teacher came in and said that the president had been assassinated. And um, I turned to a friend of mine and said, what's assassination mean? I didn't know what, the mean, what it meant. I was 11 years uh, Eleven years old, and um, they dismissed us, and we all went home, and uh, the whole world changed. And right at that moment, that was your first exposure to the word assassination, and you didn't know what it meant. And yeah. uh, uh, at what point did you sort of make it your life's work? Well, nineteen sixty-nine with the Clay Shaw trial. That's when I started to really get heavily into and start to study it and read everything about it. And um, uh, then I got in touch with Penn Jones and went down to Dallas and had a had a complete tour of Dealey Plaza with Penn by Penn Jones. And uh, eventually, what happened was Penn had got me an interview with Jim Garrison, which wasn't hard to get because he had been. This was 1972. He was totally smeared right by the media, and and um, I made arrangements with uh, with Garrison that I would use best efforts to get it on. Onto uh, onto border stations, and I got it onto CBLT and uh, the CBC equivalent down in Windsor. And what year was that that you brought the Zapruder film? Nineteen seventy-two. You smuggled the Zapruder film. Yeah. If you'd been caught, Penn with that Jones film. went to Penn Jones brought it to me at the airport, and I got on the plane, and I would have gotten seventy-seven years in jail. That's what I was told. Seventy-seven years. Yeah, in jail. I'd still be in jail now if I'd gotten caught. And you met Penn Jones at Love Field. Airfield was it Love Airfield at that time? At that time, it would have been. Um, well, that was the. Um, yeah, that's right. Air Canada flew that th- th- down to Love Field. All right, uh, let's uh, bring in uh, Jim Mars. I mentioned the author of Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, and uh, I can't think of anyone else uh, aside from Nelson that I'd want to uh, spend uh, talking about the 50th anniversary. Then, the legendary Jim Mars. Jim, how are you? Hey, Richard, it's great to be with you this evening. Well, you know, obviously the, the mainstream media has been out in full force. Uh, all the documentaries uh, that have been airing on television, again, propping up sort of the, uh, the official uh, Warren Commission 
uh, findings and, uh, the, you know, the, a great deal of attention being played to uh, the magic bullet theory and trying to explain why the magic bullet isn't so magical. Uh, and I'm often, I've often wondered, uh, Jim, whether or not we hang too much on the magic bullet. Uh, I want to get your thought on that. Even let's assume for a second that the the shots came from behind and uh, the bullet that, you know, came through, uh, did come through Kennedy's back, out his throat, uh, into Connolly's side, through his wrist and into his uh, thigh. Uh, Let's assume that that happened the way it did. I mean, that doesn't necessarily destroy, uh, you know, the the idea that that, uh, Oswald, you know, acted alone, that, that he was with, he was involved in a conspiracy. Do we hang too much on the magic bullet theory? No, in fact, uh, I think the big problem is, is that people have been distracted and confused and befuddled for too long. Uh, you know, let's, uh, I, I try to advise people not to get too sucked into all of the minutia uh, of the Kennedy assassination, because as one who's uh, been on the job since maybe 15 minutes after the shooting, uh, I've looked into everything, and I guarantee you it'll uh, it'll drive you nuts. Uh, basically, Richard, it comes down to simply a question of belief. Okay, if you believe in and trust the federal government of the United States, then you believe and trust the evidence that they've presented to us. And if you just accept that and don't look any further, it's very damning against Lee Harvey Oswald, and it certainly paints him as possibly the assassin. But if you distrust the government, and I submit, we well, we should. I mean, they've only lied to us and been caught at it time after time after time. Uh, okay, remember uh, light at the end of the tunnel in Vietnam, no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, read my lips, no new taxes. You know, come on, you can keep your health plan. Come on, all they do is lie. So if you distrust the government, then you have to question the evidence that they presented to us, and when you do, it all starts falling apart. They said, well, we've got his fingerprints on the rifle, but it turns out the funeral home director will tell you that he was there when, three days later, when the Secret Service agents placed Oswald's dead hand on the rifle, and he said he had a hard time getting the fingerprint ink off of Oswald's dead hand before they buried him that afternoon. And then later that day is when they suddenly announced they had his fingerprints on the gun. The two men, two naval technicians, Gerald Custer and Floyd Reby, who took the autopsy x-rays and photographs of President Kennedy, uh, are now on the record saying, well, the ones they're showing us today are not even the ones we took. They're fakes. They're phonies. All right, Jim, listen, i got to take a timeout. We'll come back. Jim Mars, Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, and in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist, Marshall McLuhan, archivist. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Uh, can I have one statement, please? I'd like some legal representation. These police officers have not allowed me to, to have any. I, uh, I don't know what this is all about. I the president. I the Sir? the president? I work in that building. Were you in the building at the time? Naturally, if I work in that building, yes, sir. Back up, man. Did you shoot the president? No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. 
All right, there, there we go. Obviously, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. I am a patsy. Those immortal words. Uh, Jim Mars is uh, with us on the line from his home in Texas, in studio, media scientist, assassination researcher, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada uh, back in 1972, Nelson Thal. Uh, before we get back to the program, let me just welcome a new affiliate, KABQ 1350 in Albuquerque. That's Albuquerque's progressive talk. KABQ AM 1350, welcome uh, to the Conspiracy Show family and great to be part of the KABQ family. All right, um, we were talking about the, uh, the, uh, the magic bullet theory or the single bullet theory and, of course, the mainstream uh, media now uh, all this week, of course, airing documentaries attempting to, uh, I guess, sort of prop up the magic bullet theory. Uh, before I get back to Jim, Nelson, I want to ask you a question. What's your main, what would you offer up as the best evidence to suggest that the magic bullet theory, uh, how does it fall apart for you? For me, it fell apart when I looked at frame 230 of the Warren Commission, of the Zapruder film, because that frame shows Conley with his right hand holding his Stetson hat just as he said he was, and Kennedy is grabbing his throat. So it, that shows that the first bullet, the bullet which supposedly, according to the Warren Commission, has gone through Kennedy's throat, is supposed to have also cra- smashed through Conley's right wrist. Well, But there you can see his right wrist is holding his Stetson hat and is nowhere near his thigh. So that is a smoking gun frame 230 disproves the single bullet theory instantly. Uh, and Jim, where for you does the, uh, the magic bullet theory or the single bullet theory fall apart? Well, the uh, single bullet theory falls apart because of our only unelected president, Gerald R. Ford. You see, the authors of the Warren Commission report initially were going to tell the truth, and they wrote that Kennedy was first shot in the back. It was Gerald Ford, with no known medical expertise, who ordered them to change the wording to Kennedy was shot in the neck. This allowed them to argue that a bullet passed through his neck, didn't hit any bone, and went right on down to hit Connolly uh, and cause all the wounds. This, of course, is the single bullet theory, uh, more appropriately called the uh, magic bullet theory. Uh, but here's the, here's the clincher. Was somebody just mistaken? No. They knew. The autopsy showed he was struck at the level of the third thoracic vertebra, which is below your shoulder blades, in the back to the right of the backbone. Okay? On page 193 of the Warren Commission meeting of January 27, 1964, their own chief counsel, J. Lee Rankin, says, quote, Seems quite apparent now, since we have a picture of where the bullet entered in the back, that the bullet entered below the shoulder blade to the right of the backbone, which is below the place where the picture shows the bullet came out the neck band of the shirt in front. And that bullet, according to the autopsy, didn't strike any bone at all. And that bullet didn't go through. And so how it could turn, and he stops. He stops because he's about to say, how could it turn in midair and strike Connolly? And it can't. And they knew it couldn't, so they lied to us. So let's break it down then. Uh, the official version, three shots fired. The first one, uh, shot A, missed. Uh, the second shot... Well, the Warren Commission said that was the magic bullet, the first shot. It was only later, uh, one of the later ones, uh, Gerald Posner, who says, well, maybe the first one missed and it was the second one because the first shot striking was so untenable. 
So, in your uh, uh, estimation or your you know research, how many shots were fired? Do you believe? Well, I go with the two separate sets of acoustical scientists that uh, studied the uh, impulses on the Dallas police uh, radio tape uh, independently, and both concluded that there were as many as nine, perhaps ten sounds they could not rule out as being gunshots. But they could only say with a 98% probability that shots were fired from the area, the region of the sixth floor of the school book depository and from behind the wooden picket fence on the grassy knoll. Okay, so there was probably a conspiracy. That's the last official word of the federal government. And Nelson, how many shots do you believe were fired? Well, one thing's for sure. Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry withheld the paraffin test done on Oswald that day for over eight years, which showed negative. So regardless of the number of shots that were fired, Oswald did not fire a gun on November 22, 1963. That's the first thing. Uh, and um, I would say I, I, in Farewell America, which was the first book that uh, detailed it, it had four gunmen. And I'd go along with uh, – that's a French intelligence group. Uh, I'd say that uh, – and Penn Jones felt there were five nests, sniper nests. Each guy has a radio man and takes one shot. So I'd say that there was a minimum of five shots. And the, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, uh, they, they utilized this, this recording from a police officer's – I guess they call it a dicta, a dicta belt or a dicta recorder. Uh, there were eight, eight acoustic uh, – whatever you want to call them, shots or what have you, but they only had enough money to analyze four of them. Is that correct? Well, they only test fired from the two locations, the sixth floor of the school book depository and from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. I submit that if they had test fired from other locations, for instance, the Dow Text building or the county records building or even the south side of uh, Elm Street, uh, south side of the uh, Dealey Plaza, they might have matched up and found that they were three or four locations. But the point is, all of this is actually kind of inconsequential because Nelson's absolutely right. The evidence shows Oswald was innocent of the shooting. The paraffin test showed he had traces of nitrates on hands but none on the face and no gunpowder on either his hands or his face. That's an indication he had not fired a rifle. I can assure you that if uh, it was Oswald firing that old loose-bolted Italian war rifle, the Mandlicker Carcano, the only way he could have gotten off three shots in less than six seconds was by not removing the rifle from his cheek in his, the classic rifle-firing position. He'd have to cock the bolt like that, and if he did, as soon as he opened that bolt, his face would have been sprayed with gunpowder and nitrates, but there was none on his face. Also, when the police asked him, where were you at the time of the shooting, he said he was in a downstairs lunchroom of the depository and correctly identified two employees who had been in the downstairs lunchroom eating their lunch. In fact, it was in that downstairs lunchroom that they later found Oswald's jacket and, and working clipboard. Uh, and now we have the uh, account of Geraldine Reed, uh, who said that uh, Oswald had come into her office in the depository. She got left behind uh, to guard the cash box and to watch the phones and stuff while everybody else went out to watch the president. And she said Oswald came in and asked for change for a dollar so he could operate the uh, vending machine and get a Coca-Cola. And she, while she was making change for him, they heard the shots. And both of them looked at each other and said, what's that? 
Okay, so Oswald here here is a defense witness saying that she had encountered and was making change for Oswald at the time of the shooting. Now. You mentioned the, uh, I want to go back to the, the paraffin wax test, and, and we should explain that this is a test uh, where the, I guess, the hands and the, uh, the face are covered with a paraffin wax and then peeled off, and uh, any, if there's any evidence or, or residue of, uh, of nitrate or gunpowder, it would show up. Now, the nitrate on the hands, that would make sense, would it not, for someone who worked at a, at a book depository building? Explain. Absolutely, because nitrates, you can pick up nitrates off of all kinds of things, and particularly off of ink, uh, newspaper ink, or, or uh, and, the, and the book boxes that Oswald was hired to move around had, uh, you know, labels uh, stamped on all over him. So it's, uh, you know, he could have gotten uh, ink all over his hands. Also, urine can uh, register positive on a uh, nitrate test, but we won't go into his bathroom habits. All right. We've talked about the Zapruder film, and, and Nelson, of course, again, you were instrumental in bringing that, uh, responsible for bringing that, uh, the, the Zapruder film, to Canada. Uh, we, we, we only seem to talk about the Zapruder film. I'm wondering uh, about the other film footage. There is the Orville Nix uh, uh, movie, and, and he was, uh, he gave us sort of an opposite uh, 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 angle that, that, that Zapruder did. Talk to me a little bit about the Orville Nix video, or film rather, and the importance of that. Well, the Orville Nix film, I'll pass it on to Jim in a second, but the Orville Nix film, the importance there is once again it shows Kennedy's head being flung backwards, which indicates a shot from the front. Correct, Jim? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, of course, uh, you, you might recall that Jackie Kennedy crawls on the rear deck of the car to pick up a piece of his head. That, too, indicates a shot from the front. The official explanation for why his head seems to snap back. It had, I, I've heard this, uh, you know, this convoluted medical explanation, something to do with the tension extent in the muscles of the back and how it's like a spring. Uh, can you walk me through sort of that explanation, Jim? Have you heard that? Why his, why, what's the official version for why Kennedy's head supposedly snaps back, even though you know, he was shot from behind according to their own theory? Uh, yes. Well, that is the jet effect. Uh, you know, uh, again, uh, keep in mind that I've covered courtrooms uh, for, you know, 50 years almost. And I assure you that you can always find some expert that you can hire for money who will tell you anything you want to hear. So you have to be a little bit leery of uh, of all this expert testimony. But the idea was that... Um, when the shot entered Kennedy's uh, from the rear, uh, and it somehow blew out through the rear um, blood and brain matter and acted as like a jet engine and propelled his head forward or backwards, or they don't know. It, it's, it's a jet effect. It opened up the front of his head, and then that pushed him back. It's all silly because the point is... A 12-year-old child can look at this Zapruder film, and all you have to do is know basic physics. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction to know that, obviously, it's hit from the front since he was knocked to the rear. It's that simple. I've, I've uh, fired guns all my life down here in Texas, been deer hunting, hog hunting, uh, bird hunting, shot beer cans, all kinds of targets, and I've never had one jump towards me. <laughs> they always go with the momentum of the bullet. Uh, but but before we get totally off the Zapruder film, I want to mention that uh, in my new updated version of Crossfire, 
Uh, I have a whole little section on new information that's been developed, particularly by Douglas Horn and the uh, Assassination Records Review Board, uh, interviewing the two men who actually worked on the Zapruder film, Homer McMahon and Morgan Bennett. And they have admitted and they have confirmed what we suspected all along. The Zapruder film, you cannot even trust it. It was in the hands of the CIA's National Photographic Interpretation Center the day after the assassination, where they made three copies, which is the same number that turned up in Dallas on Monday when it was turned over to Time Life. So even before Time Life got it, it had already been manipulated. Well, let's talk about the manipulation of the Zapruder film. First of all, Nelson, the, the, the copy that you brought to Canada, was it manipulated? Oh, I'm sure it was because it came from a copy made that Jim Garrison had taken over the lunch hour during the Clay Shaw trial and whipped off a copy. It was a very, very it was it was pre Groden, Bob Groden. It was a very, very What does that mean, pre Bob Groden? Groden came along years later and was able to give us a much better copy. The thing is, this Jim, if they were going to alter it, um, they they did switch frame three for three fifteen and three fourteen in volume eight of the Warren Commission to make it look like his head went forward, but they still didn't um, alter the Zapruder film. He definitely was went backwards with tremendous violence. So they did do – and certainly they they took out frames. For instance, the Stemmen Freeway sign was cut down. It, it was hit by a bullet hole and there, there's frames missing there because they didn't want, want uh, that – freeway sign being hit to be shown there were a number of other changes in the in in the in the Zapruder film no doubt about but not enough to to make it impossible to tell that there was a lot of a lot of things going on all right we'll uh, take a time out jim mars is with us author of crossfire the plot that killed kennedy served as the basis for oliver stone's movie jfk nelson thal assassination researcher media scientist in studio back with more of our 50th anniversary jfk special stay with us all right, we are back. Jim Mars is with us uh, on the line from uh, Texas, the great state of Texas. Of course, he the author of Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, a New York Times bestseller. Also, his uh, 2000 uh, book, Rule by Secrecy, which traced the hidden history that con- connects modern secret societies to the ancient mysteries, was also a New York Times bestseller. Uh, in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist and assassination uh, researcher. Uh, I, w- I want to talk uh, about, uh, go back to the Orville Nix uh, film again. And uh, it's important because Zapruder uh, had his back to the grassy knoll, but Orville Nix's perspective, we see the grassy knoll. I mean, is there any evidence there in the the Orville Nix footage that a shot may have been fired from the grassy knoll? Because, you know, he sort of sweeps it and you don't, I don't know, you, you don't see anybody there that looks like a shooter, but who knows? Jim? Well... Uh, number one, <laughs> there are researchers who claim they can see flashes on the grassy knoll and various vague figures uh, in the next film. I'm not a I'm not an expert, so I can't tell you if that's legitimate or not. But what I can tell you is Orville Nix himself and his granddaughter, who I am still in contact with, say that when the government took his film and when it was returned, it was not the same. They had altered that film too. Okay, this is the key to it. It's not who could have shot Kennedy. Anyone could have shot Kennedy. KGB agents, mafia hitmen, Castro people, you know, KGB, uh, CIA people. Yes, and even the lone nut. The point is, who has the power to obscure 
and obstruct and cover up the assassination of the President of the United States for 50 years. Certainly not Oswald and certainly not communist. Well, Nelson, you, you wanted to say something about, about about that as well. I mean, when we're talking about, the, you know, the mob often comes up and, and whether they were able to, would have been able to pull this off. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, let's remember this, that um, <clears throat> who has the power to eliminate the protection of the president, change the parade route, send Oswald to Russia and get him back, get the FBI, CIA and the police to mess up the investigation, get the U.S. cabinet all on a plane to Japan with no code book, get a third of the U.S. force in the air over American battle fatigues, get the Washington phone system cut off a half hour before the assassination, get JFK's enemies on the Warren Commission, wreck the autopsy, and get the national media to go to sleep. Powerful forces alone. Bertrand Russell said, if Lee Harvey Oswald was what they, they claim he was, a lone assassin, what's the big deal with national security? Now, what do you mean by that? What's the big deal? Well, why would you be concerned with national security? Why would you lock up all his income tax records and millions of other important documents and the films? Jim was talking about films. Um, the Bushka lady and Mary Mormon. There's tons of other f- photographs that were taken that day that would show the other gunmen, but they were sanitized and put in the archives and we can't get at them for national security. Well, if it's a lone assassin, what is the big deal about national security? Excellent point. Yeah, it seems like the only uh, person who didn't have a camera uh, was uh, the president himself that yeah. day and maybe the first <laughs> right. lady. Yeah, and you know, guys, I was there. Uh, I was in Dallas area, okay? I was on. Uh, I was a sophomore in the university on a degree plan to uh, for journalism so to, I knew it was a big story and I was right on it and I want to tell you something they with the authorities were all over television all over radio in the Dallas area uh, urging everyone to be patriotic and to come and hand in their films and their photographs that they'd taken in Daly Plaza for evidence purposes and at that point in time when everybody was had full faith and confidence in their government everybody rushed down and handed everything in the next film the uh, Zapruder film uh, the Dorman film a few others these are the only ones that we know about they took up dozens perhaps hundreds and we've never seen them again they disappeared into the dark hole of the federal government and so and yet there are stuff still coming out now just a few weeks ago, they suddenly came out with another film of the assassination that had laid in somebody's, uh, you know, closet for all these years. And there may be more. One of these days, maybe we'll get some more evidence. But when people ask, say to me, well, if there's a big conspiracy, you know, where's the evidence? Well, they took up the evidence. They hid it away, just as Nelson was uh, outlining. Uh, Jim, and you did this for me when I was uh, in Dealey Plaza over the phone, which I was mentioning earlier. It was very surreal. You were giving me a guided tour. I don't know if you remember that. I was in town. I was going to interview you later that day. You called to confirm the interview, and I happened to be there. And as I said, you were giving me this guided tour. I do recall, and you were actually in Dealey Plaza, and I kind of talked to you as you walked around. You right? said, "Yeah." You said, "You know, turn, look over your shoulder, see the tree in front of the Texas Book Depository building. It's the same height it was back in '63. He wouldn't have gotten yeah. a clear shot." Then you said, "Look across the Houston to the Dell Tech building," and you started to lay out for me where the shooters may have been positioned. Uh, could you do that for me again? Where were the shooters, in your estimation? Well, now, now this is theorizing, okay. Uh, but uh, obviously there was uh, a, a, at least one shooter uh, to the rear 
Now, uh, if anyone fired from that six-floor window, this book depository, I don't think they could have hit anything. I don't think they were intended to hit anything. If there was somebody shooting on the sixth-floor southeast corner, uh, where they say is the sniper window, it's because somebody was there firing a, ri- a rifle for evidence purposes. So people would say, yeah, shot, shot came from up there. But now I think maybe a telling shot could have come from the wide open windows on the extreme west end of the sixth floor of the school book depository. I think also that there was a shot from the Daltex building because one of them seemed to be on a very low and almost level trajectory and the street drops, uh, you know, towards the triple underpass. And I think that since there was a shell casing found on the roof of the county records building, I think there possibly was a shot from there also. And uh, then, of course, obviously, from behind the uh, picket fence on the grassy knoll. In fact, if this was any other case, and uh, you found out that a man was shot in an open car and that uh, the majority of witnesses right near the car in that end of the, of the little park said that the shot came from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll, and two separate sets of acoustical scientists confirmed that at least one shot came from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll, and you have a photograph of a man firing from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. If I tried to tell you there was no one there, you'd think I was an idiot. All right, Jim, I've got to take a time out. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Jack Ruby gave clear clues to his role in the assassination when he was interviewed on camera. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. The people have, that had so much to gain and have such an material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. will never let the true facts some of our boards to the to the world. Now these people are in very high positions, Jack. Yes. Jack Ruby said he would reveal the true story of the Kennedy assassination if he was moved from Dallas to Washington, D.C. for protection. Ruby feared for his life if he testified in Dallas, but no transfer to Washington, D.C. was ever authorized by federal authorities. Jack, what's going about the hearing? I want to correct what I stated before. He was vice president. Remember I said? He was vice president? Yes, I did when I mentioned about Adelaide Stevens. If he was vice president, there would never have been no fascination of our beloved president. Kennedy. Did you explain it again? Well, the answer is the man in office now. All right, that was uh, Jack Ruby, and then uh, I don't know if you could hear it. It was a little muffled, but uh, he's asked in a hallway, uh, you know, about his comments about the vice president. And what Ruby was saying was, if Adelaide Stevenson had been Kennedy's vice president, none of this would have happened. And he said the answer to all this is the man in office, meaning the vice president, which would seem to implicate uh, LBJ. All right, we're uh, talking with Jim Mars on the phone from uh, Texas. Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy, served as the basis for Oliver Stone's uh, book, JFK. And, of course, in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist, assassination researcher, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada. Uh, uh, Jim, you mentioned uh, photographs of of, uh, a gunman behind the white picket fence and the grassy knoll. Uh, Mm -hmm. What photograph is that, for those not aware? That's the Mary Mormon photograph. And 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 what does it show? uh, Years ago, uh, we were able to uh, secure uh, uh, the exact same type of Polaroid camera and found out that the lens was good enough to pick up details in the extreme background and not through any kind of manipulation, but just simply a blow-up 
uh, it is quite obvious. There's a picture of a man in a dark shirt, semicircular patch on his uh, left shoulder, uh, some kind of bright metallic object on his left chest, uh, and he is in a classic rifle firing position with uh, partially obscuring his face is a flash or a puff of smoke exactly where some of the uh, uh, assassination witnesses placed it. In fact, that's another issue. Uh, people said that day that they saw smoke drifting off the grassy knoll, but the debunkers have always claimed that modern rifles do not use powder that smokes, and so they couldn't have seen this. And yet, in my new updated version of Crossfire, I publish a frame from the Dave Waveman, an NBC cameraman film, and you can plainly see the puff of white smoke drifting off the grassy knoll as Kennedy's uh, limousine with the stricken president uh, drives into the triple underpass. Uh, also, uh, Senator Yarborough, who was, I believe, two cars behind the uh, the presidential limo, and also the mayor's wife, uh, Mrs. Cabell, didn't they both claim that they smelled gun smoke? And keeping in mind that they're driving into the wind, supposedly, they both testified. Uh, that's, that's absolutely correct. In fact, uh, Senator Yarborough told me that uh, the whole motorcade came to a stop, uh, and uh, which is not reflected in the Zapruder film, uh, indicating either all the witnesses were lying or the film has been altered. Uh, speaking of, Nelson, you might be interested to know also, in the, I also have 11 Hollywood film experts, who uh, all of them familiar with 8 and Super 8, um, who have looked at frame 317 of the Zapruder film, and they said without any question this is a crude painted-on <laughs> patch on the back of Kennedy's head, and, of course, it was there to obscure that large evulsive wound on the right rear portion of his head, which indicates a exit wound. Oh, that's interesting. It was painted on. Yeah, they said it was a crude forgery. But see, and you know, um, when you talk about forgery on the Zapruder film, uh, Nelson, I think you'll agree with me. Uh, they they were under excruciatingly tight time frame and intense pressure. Oh, yeah. To try to hurry up and get something done with that because I recall myself watching TV right after the the assassination. In fact, I'd been watching TV for maybe 15 minutes or more before they announced he was dead, and that was right about one o'clock. So I'd been, I was on to it like 12:45, 15 minutes after the shooting. And real quick, they said, "We understand there's a man who's got a home movie of the uh, assassination. We'll have that on here just soon we can." And as you know, I'm sure you know, they rushed all around Dallas. They went to Channel 8. They went to uh, to the Kodak studio. They went everywhere trying to get that film processed. But nobody was set up to process Super 8 millimeter film. So, uh, but they were announcing it right away. So my point being that they already knew about the Zapruder film. It was being announced on television. They couldn't have, they couldn't secret it away forever. So they were under intense pressure to try to hurry up and get that thing doctored up so they could say it was one lone assassin from the rear. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. Let's talk a moment uh, about uh, Oswald and, and his um, what what he did uh, after he left the Texas Book Depository building. Supposedly, I mean, he uh, he crossed town in a, on a bus and took a cab and uh, walk us through uh, where Oswald uh, supposedly went after the shooting. Well, you always hear people say that he fled the building. You know, well, that, you know, right there, just that statement makes it sound like he's guilty. But if you'll stop and really look at it closely, again, that all falls apart. First off, he told the police that his 
supervisor, Bill Shelley, had told him, go on home. There's not going to be any more work done here today, which was probably true. Uh, and he also said uh, to uh, a Secret Service uh, uh, inspector on Sunday that he told him, and it's right in the Ward Commission appendix, uh, that as he was leaving the school depository, a young man, a crew cut, ran up to him, showed him a book of identification, identified himself as Secret Service, and asked him where the phone was. Now, we're, sh- we're told an hour later he stopped by a cop out on a street in far south Dallas, and he shoots him down. But here's the Secret Service agent. He actually showed him where the phone was, and he said he stood to watch to make sure the guy got to the phone. Doesn't sound much like an escaping assassin, does it? Then he walks up the strolls up the street, and he gets on a bus, a city bus. That's not exactly your most uh, famous getaway vehicle. And the bus is heading back down towards Dealey Plaza and got caught in traffic. It wasn't moving, wasn't going anywhere. So he gets off the bus and then goes and, and was starting to get in a cab. But a woman came up and he said, oh, well, here, lady, you go ahead and you take it. And he offered it to her, but she said, no, thanks. So he went ahead and got in the cab and supposedly drove to his rooming house out in South Dallas. That doesn't sound much like an escaping assassin, does it? No, indeed. Now, what is the story, either Nelson or, or Jim, about a, a Dallas squad car uh, showing up at his at his rooming house and honking on the horn uh, like some sort of signal? What, what What is that all about? What happened there? Go ahead, Jim. Oh, well, okay. Uh, well, Arlene Roberts, who was uh, the landlady there at the rooming house, said that she was watching TV and she had heard that the president had been shot and, and that all of a sudden Oswald comes hustling in, doesn't say anything to her, just goes back to his room. And so while she's sitting there watching TV, she said a Dallas police car pulled up the front and she thought maybe it was one of the officers that she knew and was a friend, but she looked out the window and she all she could see was that the, she noticed the number one and the number zero, but she didn't recognize it and she didn't think that was her friend. So she went on, turned around, went back to watching TV, and then she heard uh, whoever was in this police car hit the uh, horn briefly, like beep beep. Okay, and then right after that, Oswald comes hustling out of his room again, doesn't say anything, and then uh, is putting on a jacket and he goes out the door and he turns right down towards Zhang's. And uh, that was the last she saw him, and that was the last she saw the police car. Now, Officer Tippett was driving car 10, <laughs> one And uh, I strongly suspect that uh, Tippett in some way was involved with Oswald, and I think he pulled around the corner there on uh, Zhang's, and uh, Lee went down, turned the corner, got in the car, and that uh, it was Tippett who drove him to the Texas Theater. Uh, and then, after dropping him off at the Texas Theater, because the Butch Burroughs, the uh, assistant manager there, said that Oswald was in the theater shortly after one, in fact, came out and bought popcorn from him, and that at 1.30, yes, someone did enter the theater without paying, and uh, that's when they came in and caught Oswald, but he said that was not... Oswald, Oswald was in the theater long before that. So in other words, Oswald was in the theater at the time Officer Tippett was shot. So Officer Tippett, I believe, dropped him off at the theater, uh, stopped across the street at the uh, Big Town Record Store, uh, ran in to use the telephone, according to employees, but couldn't raise anybody and ran out again. And at that exact time, the Dallas police dispatcher was trying to radio him and couldn't raise anybody because he was out of the car in the record store. 
And he came out, got in his car, and then turned towards town, turned up on 10th, and went east on 10th until he got to Patton, where he was uh, stopped to talk to somebody and was killed. So if Tippett was uh, was involved with Oswald in this, I guess how do we how do we then we just have a couple minutes here? Uh, how do we characterize Oswald's role in this? Was he, I mean he said he was a patsy, but did did he think he was part of a, a sting operation to prevent the assassination? What what, what do you think, Jim? Well, uh, well, in, uh, interviewing Abraham Bolden, the first uh, black Secret Service agent, and he was telling me that there was a plot to kill Kennedy in Chicago a few weeks uh, before Dallas. And that, but it got broken up thanks to the warning from an FBI informant. And he said he never was able to learn who this informant was, but he did understand that his name was Lee. Hello. And I happen to know, I can't prove this, but I know from several different policemen who told me that, that it was widely rumored around the Dallas police station that they had received a letter a, few, a week or two before the assassination. Uh, warning that Kennedy was going to be killed in Dallas, and they needed to strengthen the uh, security arrangements. And this letter was signed Alex J. Hydell, which was Oswald's alter ego. And they put the file in the, in the in police intelligence files. Uh, but then when the FBI swept through there that weekend, the, the letter went missing and has never been seen again. I think Oswald was exactly what his mother always said, uh, a low-level operative, uh, paid by the U.S. government, perhaps an FBI informant, certainly connected to the CIA uh, through naval intelligence, and that he was, I think he was reporting back on uh, on plots to kill the president, never realizing that the people he was reporting back to were the ones who were setting him up to be the patsy. In Oliver Stone's film, Richard, uh, he at the end of the film, he does show that Helms admitted under testimony years later that – Richard Helms, Richard CIA Helms, director. Yeah, that uh, Oswald had a CIA I- I- number and was a CIA informant as well as an FBI informant. And because we're closing off here, let's just not forget that it was Richard Russell, Sherman Cooper and Hale Boggs, three men voted against the single – against the lone assassin theory. So three – it was a 4-3 vote. Three members of the Warren Commission did not agree totally that Oswald acted alone. There you go. Yes, and the most vociferous of those was uh, uh, Hale Boggs, who then took a government junket on an airplane up to Alaska and was never seen again, yeah. uh, thus becoming one, one of the uh, dozens of convenient deaths that uh, occurred in the wake of the assassination. And his, and his daughter was given a plum job, Cokie Roberts, on ABC, and his son, Tim, Robert, uh, Tim was, it became, they gave, they threw tons of business through, he was, he had a PR agency in Washington. Uh, uh, so, like, this thing is... <laughs> All right, so we're going to... It's deep, and it's bad. All right, it's let's, bad. Let, let's reconvene here in 50 years, gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> Jim Mars, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. Jim Mars, Crossfire, the plot that killed Kennedy. Nelson, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Always follow the truth. Welcome. Welcome to the uh, program. Before we begin the proceedings, I want to welcome once again a brand new affiliate, KAQ, 1350 AM, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Albuquerque's Progressive Talk, KABQ. 
13.50 a.m. And uh, welcome to the Conspiracy Show family. Great to have you on our uh, roster of uh, Evergrove affiliates. And uh, very honored and proud to be a member of uh, fifty Progressive Talk down in uh, Albuquerque. All right. Uh, you know, I was um, uh, kind of taken aback recently. Uh, I saw uh, an article uh, that said the magic bullet is not so magic. And I thought, oh, how can they possibly say that? I mean, how, you know, the, you know, the bullet supposedly it goes through Kennedy's back, comes out his throat, goes through the car seat, goes through uh, uh, Connolly's, shatters Connolly's rib cage, comes out his wrist, goes into his thigh, comes out on a gurney at Parkland Hospital in pristine condition. And, oh, and then I realized the article I was reading had to do with the magic bullet food processor. <laughs> not so, not so magic. Anyway, a little levity we inject, even though, you know, it's 50 years, 50 years since the assassination. I think we can just sort of lighten the mood a little bit, but it is uh, admittedly. You know, a solemn occasion. And uh, uh, this next hour, we'll take, I guess, one last look at the uh, the Kennedy assassination as we approach the 50th anniversary before we close the book, really. I've been sort of going hot and heavy on the, the JFK assassination all year as we approach the 50th. And uh, after tonight... Um, I think enough said for now. Uh, I was sort of joking recently with, when talking with uh, Jim Mars and uh, Nelson Thal. We'll reconvene here in 50 years and talk about it again. Uh, unless, you know, in the next several years or next several months, something else comes out, uh, perhaps from the JFK uh, assassination records collection, uh, which was actually brought about uh, largely as a result of Oliver Stone's JFK uh, movie. Uh, but barring that... Uh, you know, I think we'll we'll put it all on the table and and leave it there after tonight and uh, move on to other things. But we certainly it certainly is deserving of one more uh, solid hour. And um, I'm uh, with that in mind, very uh, pleased to welcome back into the studio our uh, good friend, our media scientist, resident media scientist, archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, and uh, the man who smuggled the Zapruder film uh, into Canada back in 1972 after receiving a copy from Penn Jones. The, one of the granddaddies of JFK research down in Love, Love Field in uh, Dallas, uh, brought it up here at great risk to his own personal liberty and where it was uh, shown on several, uh, I believe, CBC border stations after they had signed off the regular broadcasting day. And uh, a few select researchers around North America were notified that the 26 seconds, perhaps the most famous 26 seconds of film ever shot, the Zapruder film, would be playing. Uh, and they were instructed to hit the record button on their giant video recording machines uh, back then, and that's how the Zapruder film first got out, was first distributed to a wider audience, and this is going back, you know, three years before, uh, of course, it was shown um, by Geraldo Rivera on his uh, ABC Late Night program. Uh, Nelson Thal, welcome to this Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? It's just terrific. Just just great being here. Just great being here. And uh, it's a, a, a mighty topic that will continue for many years to come. And it was... Uh, and one year ago uh, today, we were doing this very program, and you brought in the replica rifle, the um, the Man Liquor uh, Carcano uh, rifle, and yeah. uh, we were trying to see if we could uh, cycle uh, the bolt, cycle the bolt uh, three times in six seconds, and so forth. That pretty tricky. Uh, I'm no, <laughs> I've, I've rarely ever handled a gun, but uh, a kind of a clumsy, flimsy weapon, wasn't it? Was it not? The humanitarian rifle, as it's called. But I hear conflicting evidence on that, Nelson. I, I hear that, no, it was a military issue for good reason and that that, that weapon could perform and, and do the things that, uh, that well, it's you reported to have done. Hand. Well, but I'm not an expert. What do I know? <laughs> what do I know? Uh, I mean, but, but 
I mean, why did they call it the humanitarian weapon? Because you couldn't really kill anybody with it. It's a, it's a very crude gun with very – and of course the one that, that was tested by the FBI, they had to uh, fix the scope, the, the so-called Oswald rifle. They had to fix the scope and shimmy it and line it up and even then there wasn't a marksman in the United States that could uh, duplicate what Oswald was supposed to have done. All right. Well, we'll uh, we'll probably get around to discussing that in a little more detail over the next hour. But I want to welcome someone else. And uh, this is a broadcaster up in uh, Kingston, uh, also an award-winning music composer uh, of feature films, uh, who has written a book uh, called JFK, uh, Kennedy, uh, The J.F. Kennedy Assassination, which was based on exclusive explosive revelations made by JFK's closest aide and speechwriter, Ted Sorensen. And uh, a great pleasure to welcome to The Conspiracy Show, Brent Holland. Hey, Brent, how are you? Fine. How are you, Richard? It's a pleasure to be on the show. And it's a great evening for this topic because the wind's blowing right across Lake Ontario and it's a rainy evening. Good night for everybody to settle in and two Canadians to discuss JFK. Uh, explain now, you have uh, been honored. You are going to be, you were the only or are the only Canadian who's been asked to speak in Dallas on the 50th anniversary uh, and this, I'm guessing, has something to do with your uh, longtime friendship with Kennedy speechwriter aide Ted Sorensen. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. Yes, indeed. Um, several years ago, I was down in New York City um, to interview a couple of, uh, actually, three Nobel Peace uh, laureates. And uh, just on, uh, I had already interviewed Ted Sorensen for my show um, Twice, I guess, and uh, I just wanted to meet and greet with him. I mean, this is virtually the fellow that wrote the letter to Khrushchev to get Khrushchev to back down during the Cuban Missile Crisis and take the missiles out. Um, he saved the world virtually, so I thought it would be kind of uh, very cool if I was in New York City to meet Ted. And Ted invited me into his Manhattan apartment, and thank God something told me before I left the hotel room to tag along my video camera, and I ended up with his last ever interview because it was only six weeks after that. Um, he died tragically. He took a second stroke after getting off the uh, telephone. And this is a theory and all in itself um, with Obama. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, very interesting. Uh, if my recollection is correct, now Kennedy delivered, uh, I think it was the summer of 63, he delivered a very famous speech at the American University uh, uh, talking about, you know, looking ahead, I think, to his second mandate. Uh, you know, Kennedy wasn't necessarily as bold uh, as he might have been. He, he didn't feel because of it was such a close election with Nixon that maybe he had the mandate that he should. So he was anticipating that, you know, if he was going to run against Barry Goldwater in 64, he'd have maybe a, a, a bigger margin, a bigger mandate. And he was going, he was preparing to make bolder moves. And one of those likely was nuclear disarmament. And he delivered this speech uh, at American University, and I'm wondering if that famous speech was written by Ted Sorensen. I think it was called To Move the World. Yes, it was. It was actually, Ted calls it the peace speech. And uh, just about every speech JFK get, uh, gave, Ted was involved with in one way or another. And uh, the two of them had a symbiotic relationship. Ted was with him for 11 years when he was a senator. They virtually shared rooms together when they were on the road when uh, Senator Kennedy was campaigning to become uh, president. And um, they were in tune. Um, it's very interesting. They both shared idealism. Uh, very often, 
Ted told me that he would write a speech with JFK in mind, and um, very often JFK would change maybe one or two words, and that would be it. He was able to encapsulate exactly what JFK was thinking. I'm and wondering what his ideals were. Sure, go ahead. I'm wondering, Brent, whether you know people often talk about Martin Luther King's speech exactly one year to the day he was assassinated in a in a, in a church, a famous speech where he he talked. Uh, about Vietnam and and how the United States was the greatest threat to peace. And uh, a lot of assassination researchers point to that speech as being sort of the nail in the coffin for Dr. King. I'm wondering whether that peace speech uh, likewise served uh, as, you know, the 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 camel that the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of the military industrial complex and and when when Kennedy was talking about you know nuclear uh, uh, test bans and so forth whether that was just too much for the military industrial complex to bear what are your thoughts and did Ted Sorensen ever talk to you about that sure um, just let me read your quote from the book uh, from the interview I did with Ted and this is Ted speaking. I don't know. Nobody really knows, and I try to avoid reading most of these so-called conspiracy books, quote-unquote. The fact is that Kennedy had enemies in the right wing, particularly because of civil rights and because his American University speech, which is the one you just alluded to, I think it was June 18th, if I'm not mistaken, indicated that he was taking a more accommodating position towards the Soviet Union. He also had enemies amongst organized crime, as did his brother Bobby, of course. He also supposedly had enemies among communists in both the Soviet Union and Cuba, although I don't think either one of them, and I don't believe it either, uh, would have thought that they would gain by Kennedy's removal. All I meant to say in the book, his book, Counselor, was considering the number of enemies that he had in the military and intelligence circles in the United States. Lord knows they had reasons to get rid of him. They had opportunities to have access to arms and to reach out to the kind of weird and confused individuals who can be recruited for that kind of work. Uh, Brent Holland, uh, broadcaster, filmmaker, writer on uh, the line uh, with us from uh, Kingston, Ontario. And uh, Nelson Thal, media scientist, assassination researcher, uh, joins us in studio. Nelson, uh, talk to me about uh, Kennedy's enemies within, uh, let's call it the national security state. I mean, obviously... Uh, he had battles early on with, with Alan Dulles uh, over the Bay of Pigs, and I think Kennedy sort of begrudgingly realized he had to go along with that. He couldn't appear to be, you know, soft on communism. He had to do kind of a delicate dance. But, uh, I mean, where, when did it all uh, sort of uh, – when, when was it cemented, I guess, in the minds of Kennedy's enemies that he had to go? Was there one speech or was there one executive order? Well, you know, the ni- before the American Newspaper Publishers Association in 61, he gave his famous secret society speech in which he said that the enemy of the republic was a secret society which he abhorred and which was the enemy of the republic. And he said, quote, it was a monolithic, ruthless conspiracy, quote, unquote. Um, I think that was <laughs> certainly a, a point at which he realized that he had some major enemies that were about and afoot. He certainly took a lot of 
uh, actions which got him into trouble. He had a lot of enemies in the oil industry because of Loophole, Texas. He was looking at bringing out uh, uh, and challenging the Fed by bringing out a, a currency issued by the actual United States government rather than the Federal Reserve. I mean, the mob uh, was he was an enemy because Bobby Kennedy was going after. So there were a lot of people. There was a whole host of 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 power groups that he had alienated. But certainly that secret society speech, I think, in 61 was was a major turning point. All right, we'll take a time out. Uh, Brent Holland, broadcaster, award-winning music composer, the only Canadian uh, invited to speak in Dallas uh, at, on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of JFK. On the line from Kingston, Nelson Thalden studio. I'm back with more of The Conspiracy Show after this. Don't go away. Welcome back. And one last look uh, at the JFK assassination before we close the books as we approach the uh, the 50th anniversary. On the line from Kingston, Ontario, Brent Holland, a broadcaster and uh, the author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. Nelson Thal, assassination researcher, media scientist in studio. Uh, let's go to Parkland uh, uh, Hospital for a moment uh, where, of course, Kennedy and uh, an injured Governor Connolly were taken. Uh, now, in your book, JFK Assassination, uh, Brent, uh, you interviewed uh, Dr. McClelland, who was one of the attending physicians. Uh, what, what did he reveal uh, that um, you found most fascinating when, when Kennedy arrived? Kennedy, when Kennedy arrived, he was still alive. Uh, many people believed that he was dead, but no, he was still breathing on his own now. I have to put a disclaimer on that because obviously he had no brain left. But what was really imperative to what Dr. McClellan told me was that he had no rear right of his head. Um, it was completely gone. And um, just, ima- uh, just imagine, folks, if you're uh, looking at a skeleton, the whole rear right section of the head gone. And uh, that can only mean exit wound, and uh, that means that definitely there was a shooter from the front, and by definition, two shooters then, and uh, conspiracy. Uh, Now, in the autopsy photos, I mean, uh, Nelson, you jump in here, because you've seen the autopsy photos, and you see uh, Kennedy's, the rear of Kennedy's head, and it appears to be intact. So how do we square... The uh, the testimony of not well, only there was a mat- flap over it. They say that so that the brain matter. Of course, the brain matter and the tissue went to the back of the car, and Jackie Kennedy went to try and retrieve his skull, a piece of his skull. But certainly, his there was not much left of his of the right side of his brain. Now it wasn't only Doctor McClellan. I I have read uh, I, there were I don't know maybe two dozen people that were working on Kennedy at the time. Uh, and I've seen quotes from about a dozen of them, and they all said, uh, reiterated, uh, uh, Brent, what Dr. McClellan told you, that Precisely. there was um, an exit wound, uh, the right rear of his skull. Yeah, and I, I, at a JFK Lancer convention, I can't remember, sometime in the early 80s, I uh, met with uh, Dr. Perry, and he said the tracheotomy that he did on Kennedy's throat, that the, the, there was a bullet hole there from in the front of the neck. And he an entry, an entry, exactly. So that was another indication of of, of uh, a shot from the front. Well, well, can I just interject here? Yes, please I also, do. So, I interviewed a, a Dallas crime scene investigator. Everybody's seen the shows by now on TV, CSI Miami, CSI. Well, just about everything at this point. Uh, using modern twenty first century crime techniques 
she examined this Zapruder film, that very famous film, folks, that uh, you've all seen in the movie JFK when Costner goes back and to the left. Using these 21st century techniques that she's put criminals away behind bars with, she found a frontal shot as well. She found a frontal shot? Correct. Now, given the, just the testimony of the attending physicians at Parkland when Kennedy came in to the emergency room. Yes, sir. Exit wound, rear of the skull. And how does that get flipped around by the time, you know, the, the autopsy is performed at Bethesda? I mean, how does that, what happened? Between... Well, he went to Walter Reed first, and that's when it was sanitized. The body was sanitized, and the real brain was removed. And I can't remember who it was back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I, at the convention, there was the, the actual attending, uh, uh, attending um, intern who – pardon me? Paul, uh, yeah, Paul Roland was that his name? I think that was, and he said that when he picked the the at, at Bethesda when he pulled the body and uh, unwrapped the towel, the Kennedy's brain fell out, and so he realized the stem had been cut and a new brain had been put in. I mean, the powers that be here, Richard, are so powerful that the forensics have been altered, and the and you know when you have powers that be that are above the law, then. They can pass down to the legal authorities all sorts of of uh, proof of the altered theory and go to go along with their theory. And this is why uh, sometimes following just the evidence that's put before you is not uh, cannot be relied upon. Uh, Brent, uh, another individual that you have uh, interviewed is Abraham Bolden, who was the first African American on uh, JFK's Secret Service detail, who JFK had handpicked himself. What did Bolden tell you about uh, that day? First of all, I want to say Abraham Bolden is a true hero. Uh, he suffered greatly after the assassination because he was a whistleblower against the Secret Service. He explained to me that there was many templates in place to kill President Kennedy and that after the assassination, virtually the Secret Service went in and covered up completely. Now, was that... For malice reasons, we don't know. He believes, as I do, that it was to cover their incompetence. Uh, we all know it, it's true fact that a lot of the agents were drunk that day. And not that it's ever happened to me or I'm sure you, Richard, but I know when I've been out drinking the night before and stayed up all night the next morning for a softball game, um, I don't hit too many home runs. And these guys were supposed to be sharp to protect the, uh, the president of the United States. And we can all see in that famous Alchins photo that none of them are, are moving. They're all looking to see where the shot came from, and they should have been all bolting to the back of that car. Uh, you spoke recently with uh, Jim Mars. Uh, oh, the, Jim, yeah. One of the preeminent uh, JFK researchers. Yeah. And he mentioned uh, Abraham Bolden in connection with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald sending a letter, uh, I believe, to the, uh, the FBI using his, his uh, pseudonym. Um, and uh, warning of a uh, warning of a plot in Dallas, warning uh, of the need to beef up security uh, in Dallas, which makes, of course, uh, Oswald look like uh, you know someone who was trying to prevent the assassination, not participate in it. Um, what did Abraham Bolden tell you about Lee Harvey Oswald? Did he think he did it? We never got into that aspect of it. We talked mostly about uh, what happened to him when he was in prison. 
uh, the dastardly things. Also, we talked extensively about a fellow by the name of Valet, who was almost identical. Uh, there were so many similarities between this fellow Valet, who was situated in Chicago, and Lee Harvey Oswald. It was uncanny. They both had been in Japan, one at um, Osaga Air Force Base uh, in Japan. Uh, that's where Lee Harvey Oswald was. And forgive me, I can't remember the name of the second base Atsugi. where Valet was. Atsugi. Atsugi was Atsugi. Oswald. Uh, Atsugi Same. was Oswald. Okay. Uh, and, and so and, Valet was uh, so a, sort of a parallel yeah. to, to Oswald. Oh, completely. completely. And he was – uh, Go ahead. He was arrested. He was arrested because uh, there was a plot uh, afoot. Um, they had got hold of a plot that uh, there was going to be an assassination attempt only two weeks before Dallas where they were going to kill Kennedy from um, a, high, uh, a high office building, just the same way that it happened in Dallas. These templates were in place. There was uh, many, many um, uh, templates right across the country wherever JFK was going uh, to get rid of him. And you mentioned that Bolden was in prison. Tell me about that. What, what happened? Oh, horrible stuff. Um, Abraham Bolden blew the whistle, as I said, on um, uh, the Secret Service. He was framed for a crime he did not commit. As a matter of fact, um, he was, uh, he was um, thrown in jail for a crime that people say that he had embezzled some money. And unfortunately, uh, they believed him. There was not much... Um, pretense for saving a black man in those days, that's for sure. And uh, the person that he was alleged to have uh, taken the money from came out and said, no, that uh, in fact the Secret Service had forced him to lie against Bolden and still nothing was done. Uh, Bolden was thrown in jail and he was taken to a medical um, insane ward in one of the prisons and forced to take drugs and um, uh, several miracles occurred for him to get out of there. It's just an amazing story. It should be made into a feature film and let's hope one day it does and justice prevails and Abraham Bolden uh, comes to the forefront of this and uh, is not only pardoned but his whole record espunged because uh, he was absolutely railroaded. Brent Holland, the author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, on the line in Kingston, and Nelson Thal, assassination researcher, media scientist in studio. Uh, we were talking about you know the, the role of the Secret Service in covering it up. Nelson, I seem to recall a story, I'm not sure if you told me this or someone else, uh, that there was, outside of Parkland Hospital, when the limousine was there, uh, parked there, uh, a Secret Service agent was seen going into the car with a mop, or not a mop, a sponge in a bucket, and they were they were basically cleaning up the inside of the limousine. Yeah, and eventually, of course, the limousine was sent to, for sanitation, uh, and it was sanitized by Lee Iacocca, was in charge of that. And remember, we did a show on that Wait, years you, you're ago. You're implicating the well, Lee Iacocca, the president, the former president of Ford Motor Company. Yeah, he was in given, covering up the assassination. Well, I'm not the, the <laughs> I'm not the only one. I mean, uh, many assassination researchers, Penn Jones, May Brussels, Sherman Skolnick, all talked about uh, Dave Emery. All of them talked about Lee Iacocca's role in sanitizing the the uh, the Lincoln Continental. Uh, 
When you say sanitizing, what do you well, mean? Well, removing all evidence as to what direction where the bullets hit. There were a number of of uh, of there's ev- was evidence in the car as far as that could give you an idea of where the bullets were all from. Right, so th- this is the theory of the other these other uh, assassination researchers that you mentioned, May Brussel and others, uh, David Emery. Uh, yeah. I'm not uh, familiar Stolen with that. I mean, Jones. I certainly wouldn't want sure. to impugn the reputation of uh, of uh, Lee Harvey or uh, not Lee uh, Lee Iacocca. Lee Iacocca. Have you heard that, Brent? I have heard about the sanitization theory. However, um, I, for one, boy, am I ever going to go out on a limb here? But uh, here we go, anyways. I don't believe Johnson or there was a military-industrial complex involved in the assassination whatsoever. I don't think it was a coup d'état. You don't, and I. I don't, not at all, and I can explain that if you'd like. It's yeah, let's take a, absolutely. Let's take a few moments. Okay, um, I did up until the point until I had met Ted. Ted was um, so close to JFK, as was um, Dave Powers, and uh, also uh, Kenny O'Donnell. A good example of that is in the movie Thirteen Days, starring Kevin Costner, which was shot in uh, Toronto, I believe. Um, you can see the dynamic between the two characters of JFK and Kenny O'Donnell. These guys were uh, personal friends. They were like brothers, tight, as tight as brothers. I would argue they were even tighter than Ted Kennedy. Um, they were urged, all of them were urged to stay on by Johnson after the assassination. Uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs of, Ch- of Staff was uh, General Maxwell Taylor. Maxwell Taylor in the... Um, in the Second World War was the head of the 101st or the 82nd, one of them. And um, if you watch the movie A Bridge Too Far, you can see Maxwell Taylor in that movie as well. He was handpicked by JFK. The head of the CIA was handpicked by JFK after the failure of the Bay of Pigs. Uh, Alan Dallas indeed had lied. He had done his own paper, research paper on the Bay of Pigs, and hid it from the Kennedy administration because it said... Without question, it was doomed to failure no matter what they did. And Ted told me that. Um, So I don't believe that Johnson was involved. And the reason being, I don't think the people around Johnson, and definitely not the folks I just mentioned, would have stood for a coup d'etat. And I'm not talking tanks or anything like that, but even an ideological coup, because he wanted to keep Ted on. He begged Ted to stay. Uh, He begged O'Donnell to stay, all these folks to stay. While I'm on the subject of Kenny O'Donnell and Dave Powers, I just want to give you a little uh, preview. I've got seven smoking guns, proof positive of conspiracy in the book. And both of those guys were in the follow-up car to JFK's car. They were in the Secret Service car, sitting in the front seat. They saw the shooter on the grassy knoll. They were asked to cover that up for national security, and they did. Can you name them? Kenny O'Donnell, oh, Dave Powers. Oh, it was those two. Ah, It was those two. Yeah. And they told you, or they told Ted Sorensen? They had told or another researcher who I had on my show by the name of Lamar Waldron directly that they saw the shots coming from the grassy knoll. And they also told um, uh, the House Speaker at the time um, in the, I think it was in the 70s, jeez, uh, I can't think of his name. Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill. Thank you, my friend. All right. Uh, so this is uh, proof positive. There's no question there was uh, more than one shooter. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think there was maybe four different spots 
All Kennedy right. was a marked man for a long, long time. All right. And so uh, uh, Brent Holland says no to the military-industrial complex or the national security state apparatus. Uh, we'll get Nelson Thal's take on that when we come back as we look at the 50th anniversary of the assassination of the 35th president, Jack Kennedy. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Brent Holland, author of JFK Assassination, From the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza, and Nelson Thull, media scientist, assassination researcher in studio. Uh, so, uh, just to recap, Brent does not believe uh, that LBJ was involved, nor the what we uh, loosely term the military-industrial complex. Uh, Nelson Thull, who do you think is responsible? Well, I, I think you've got to start with some of the interesting where I started, and that was the um, the interesting connections between uh, Walter Dornberger, who was uh, on Hitler's Hitler's Waffen SS general, who um, was uh, sentenced at Nuremberg and um, sentenced to be executed and was not executed, and wound up as the vice president of Bell Helicopters, and was the boss. Uh, of course, during the war, he was um, Ge- von Braun's boss. And um, at Bell Helicopters, uh, he was protected by the Americans. He got out through the Vatican rat line. And uh, his num- he was Michael Payne, his boss. And Michael and Ruth Payne safe housed one of the Oswalds. Um, Professor Popkin's book, The Second Oswald, is a wonderful book because there was more than one Oswald. There was an Oswald that went to Russia uh, and as a result of defecting and giving up uh, classified information, Francis Gary Powers claimed that as a result of Oswald's uh, information, the Russians were able to shoot him down. The U-2 uh, pilot. Yes. yes. Now, another Oswald returned of a different height and uh, according to the Warren Commission, a completely different height from the Oswald that went. And the Oswald that went and defected from Atsugi, Japan, had this training – uh, he returned and Michael Payne and Ruth Payne safe housed them and uh, they were uh, working for Dornberger. And you've, so you've got Walter Dornberger, you've got Galen, another Waffen-SS general, takes is in control at the CIA. You get Helene Van Damme who's on Hitler's staff and um, she becomes governor and President Reagan's appointment secretary. So you're talking about what if, Jim Mars wrote about also the rise of the Fourth Reich the, this time in America. So you're talking I, about a Nazi connection. I think that May Brussels' rise of the Fourth Reich and the Nazi connection to JFK conspiracy is an important place to start. But one thing I think we have to ask ourselves, what power group has the power to eliminate the president, the protection for the president, change the parade route, Earl Cabell, Charles Cabell, one's the mayor of Dallas, the other's the co-director of the CIA. Send Oswald to Russia and get him back. Get the FBI, CIA, and the police to botch the investigation. Get the U.S., the entire U.S. cabinet all on a plane to Japan with no code book. Uh, Get a third of the U.S. forces in the air over America at the time of the assassination in battle fatigues. Get the Washington phone system cut off on November 22nd, get JFK's enemies on the Warren Commission and direct the autopsy and get the national media to go to sleep. I'm sure the military could not do all that. I'm sure that the power groups that were behind this assassination are way above the military and the military were just lackeys and useful fools and 
pockets and splinter groups. I'm not, I don't think the U.S. military as a whole was consciously behind this, but rogue elements within the military, rogue elements within the mob, rogue elements within the intelligence agencies. A number of intelligence agencies were involved. This was a very, very high-level coup d'etat, and we know that uh, many uh, – there's groups that were – this – Kennedy is not the first president to be assassinated by foreign powers. So this was a, by people who were way above the law and uh, I agree with, with, your, with, with, uh, Brent. with Brent that this was not just a military-industrial complex. They couldn't do all this alone. All right, Brent. Well, let's expand on that then. Re- if not LBJ and, and uh, some in the military-industrial complex, uh, who, who do you see as being responsible? Well, I approach the assassination very conservatively. Um, I can only speak about what I have learned from various researchers. And um, I agreed without question there was a conspiracy and a cover-up. Who was responsible for that? I think you have to look at Operation Mongoose. You've got a lot of very pissed-off people uh, with Cuban exiles that feel that they were betrayed Working with those folks are future Watergate folks like um, Sturgis and E. Howard Hunt. So you've got a few key CIA people. Uh, You've got some military people also involved in intelligence. And I couldn't agree more with your guests, but absolutely, uh, you don't need a lot of people. You really don't to pull this thing off. And uh, you just put the snipers in the right place at the right time. And I think the mob was involved without question. Uh, they had the most to gain from it, and from what I've been able to find out, it looks like Hoffa financed it. And Were let's not pl- forget that Jim, Jim Garrison, who's the only man to bring charges, uh, right. identified Permindex Corporation, which was Clay Shaw, Clay Shaw, Lewis, Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield, and Charles de Gaulle was the one who tossed uh, – Permindex out of France, claiming that they were a murder inc. and were trying to assassinate him. So you know, when you got to look at Permindex and uh, and those people above the above well, that. Well, that's as well. part of the military industrial complex. Yes, it is, but it's not the military industrial complex as a whole. The, the, these are people who are far more powerful that give orders to, to military industrial complex people. All right, we'll take another time out. Back on the other side, more of my conversation with Brent Holland, JFK assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. And in studio, Nelson Thal, media scientist, Marshall McLuhan archivist, assassination researcher. Stay with us. All right, winding down our 50th anniversary special on JFK and his assassination. And uh, Brent Holland is with us on the line from Kingston, Ontario, where he is a a broadcaster and filmmaker, uh, composer, and the author of JFK Assassination from the Oval Office to Daily Plaza. He'll be speaking, the only Canadian invited to speak at the... uh, 50th anniversary in Dallas, uh, and largely, I guess, because of his association with uh, the late Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's closest aide and speechwriter, uh, who has also confirmed uh, to uh, Brent that there was a conspiracy. Uh, now, you were saying that you don't believe that this was a, a, a coup d'etat, uh, Brent, but I, th- I think if you look at sort of the trajectory of you know, where America has headed since 1963... Uh, you know, one could almost sort of plot this this slow motion march towards a national security state, totalitarianism, and one wonders whether that would have been possible if Kennedy had, let's say, served a second term followed by his brother Bobby. 
What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, completely. And that's something Abraham Bolden mentioned to me, too. He said, you know, he said, you just look around today um, at the lack of uh, rights and all the rights that have been taken away from us over the years. He said, it just seems to be a constant spiral down. Ted said something to me, too, that was very profound. He said, rarely in a lifetime would you have a JFK. Rarely in a lifetime would you have a Dr. King or a Bobby. He said, they were taken away from us within five years. He said, that hurt the country. He said, the country has never recovered from that. And I understand that completely because I think Bobby, essentially, because we ended up with Nixon. Yes, yes. Uh, And then... In, in, in a manner, he was also assassinated uh, during Watergate. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So he wasn't following the script. Uh, Nelson, expand on the idea of, 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 of uh, the JFK assassination as a coup d'etat. Uh, so the idea is to take over the executive branch or, or was it – what was that all about? Yeah, I mean when you take a look at it, while they were worrying about uh, fighting over Kennedy's body, the uh, – the police forces, the state police in Texas said it's illegal to, to – they actually – it was illegal to remove his body from the state. They were fighting over it. Um, who was moving into the basement of the White House and b- setting up the microphones so that Nixon could start bugging? And uh, I mean whoever launched this, what I believe was a coup d'etat, uh, wanted to not just kill the president of the United States but take out the executive branch of government. And since the, then, they not only took over the executive branch of government, they had control of the judiciary, witness uh, the Warren Commission and, and witness even the way in which uh, they had – they selected George W. Bush and the connection between – Antonin Scalia, Eugene Scalia, and uh, and uh, and uh, Ted, uh, uh, his his lawyer, Olson, Ted, Ted Olson. Olson, and the connection there. The, so so the the branch, the judicial branch of government, is now out of in control of this coup. The ex- White House is in control, and now they finally have gotten control of all three branches of the government. So there's no separation of branches in the United States. And um, when you just take a look at the 9-11 and how it was run, and I mean the Gulf of Tonkin was was a false flag. It was uh, 9-11, uh, uh, the, um, <laughs> these are all fascist tactics. I, I go along with Kurt Waldheim, Waffen FSS became Secretary General of the United Nations. I mean there's been a major coup d'etat here and one could argue – I wonder whether or not the bulge didn't go right to the White House. But, Explain that. What do you mean? Well, the Battle of everywhere the you look, you've got <laughs> – everywhere you look, May Brussel points out and Sherman Skolnick points out and Dave Emery points out. You've got, you've got the, the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination and to this coup. Brent, what do you think of that? What do you make of that? A Nazi no. connection? No. Uh, no, I don't see it. All right. And you've got Bush, <laughs> uh, Brown Harriman Bank that financed that financed the uh, the, the Nazi Germany's war production. Uh, Prescott Bush was the C- CEO of Brown Harriman Bank. Uh, his son, both his his son and his grandson, became president of the United States, and uh, George. George Herbert Walker Bush was 
became head of this America's secret political police. I mean we've had a complete uh, fascist coup d'etat takeover of the United States as, as far as I can see and it looks like the proof is in the pudding. Uh, Brent, let, let's talk about sure. uh, what you're going to be doing down in uh, Dallas on the 50th. Uh, you, are you going to be presenting your film? I am going to be presenting uh, two documentaries, actually, that are being uh, printed as we speak to be companions with the book. One is on Abraham Bolden, and the other one is a short, brief, um, how can I put this, uh, reflective documentary on Ted Sorensen. And in that documentary is what the explosiveness is that he told me that confirmed conspiracy. And that's something I haven't mentioned tonight. And I don't mind mentioning it because, as I quote Dr. Robert McClelland, who worked on JFK, history belongs to everybody. All right. Well, I thought the explosive announcement was that uh, these two Secret Service agents had confirmed that they witnessed the shot coming from the grassy knoll. So you've got something else to lay on us. Absolutely. And I don't mind sharing this. I just hope people go and buy the book anyways. But that wasn't the point for me to write the book or when I do my shows. It's to inspire folks and question everything, as your logo says. Okay. Ted said in an interview that without, and I'm going to quote him now, without answering any questions, because he won't answer them, people are going to know this year, and this was March 2010, folks, why JFK was killed. All right. And that's exactly what he said. And that is explosive for a single reason. That means conspiracy. Without question, he just confirmed conspiracy. And he would not go further with that. And as I related to at the beginning of the show... Um, only a few months later, Ted was dead after getting off the phone with the White House. Now, I, I think that is just pure coincidence. I don't want to go out there and say that <laughs> he died um, because of something the, the White House had done. But without a question, when he said those words, people will find out why, and the key word there is why he was killed. That means that he knew it wasn't just some whack job named Oswald. But a he, lucky shot. But he was certain that it would have been revealed in 2010. Exactly. And I did some research. Yeah, what happened in 2010? Castro was on his way out. Now, that doesn't mean Castro right away, folks. I want to just relax. Castro was not involved with the assassination at all. But I had mentioned Ted wrote a letter to get Khrushchev to pull the missiles out. Guess what's still in Cuba? The missiles. Bingo. And they don't want to open up that can of worms because they don't want to risk. There's still some hawks in, the, in, the, uh, in and around the White House and in the Pentagon for sure that would not sit very well with the public uh, and these hawks. They would want to go back in and take out those missiles. And why risk another nuclear standoff and an escalation? So was, was Ted Sorensen perhaps expecting... Castro, who was yes. on his way out to spill the beans? I think he was expecting Castro to die, and then the, the national security would be over, and they'd be able to release those facts. Because let's face it, Castro is a loose cannon. He always has been. Um, his, his human rights record is deplorable. Let's not forget that uh, Che Guevara wanted to 
get rid of every gay person uh, on the island of Cuba when he came to power, and he was going around shooting 12-year-old kids with his own pistol. This, was, this, is, this distresses me when I see, uh, it's very chic, of course, to wear Che, to wear che Guevara t-shirts, and I see kids, uh, you know, high school kids, and, 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 I, and I always say to myself, don't, these, don't they realize who this guy no, really was? They really don't. They really don't. And this is, this is the problem, you know, and, and this is one of the reasons why I do my show, as I'm sure you do your show. Uh, listen, I did a show on the Titanic, and I had people write me emails saying that whatever happened to Jack, <laughs> which is the DiCaprio character. Right, right. Yes. That's, yeah. It's frightening, isn't it? Oh, terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Nelson, uh, as, we, uh, as we close the 50th anniversary, what do you, you want to leave us with here? Treason doth never prosper, for it prospers. None dare call it treason. Uh, this is as long as uh, the cover-up's going to continue. I think eventually it'll come out, but I think we've got a long way still to go. But we've been doing this now for uh, I've been doing anniversary shows for at least thirty, more than thirty years. We'll just have to wait it out and hopefully see what happens. But uh, it's an exciting topic, and uh, uh, we'll just watch and see what happens in the United States. Certainly, it looks like um, uh, more and more the country is going into Big Brother, Big Brother mode, and moving away from democracy. That's for sure. Uh, Brent, why does it still matter fifty years later? It matters because if it can happen in the United States, it can happen anywhere. Uh, the United States is the poster child, if you will, for freedom around the world. And if it can happen there, it can happen here just as easily. Um, I would like to uh, just leave you with that Ted and both President Kennedy felt that peace was the way to go. They could have been the, the two first globalists, if you will, in terms of peace. Um, you know, Kennedy said for in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet, we all breathe the same air, and we all cherish our children's future. And I, that's beautiful. That's from the peace, uh, the peace speech that you had alluded to, June 10th, 1963. Nelson, how do you think uh, history would be different or how would America or the world be different had Jack Kennedy been allowed to survive and serve, let's say, a second term in office? Yeah, I think that we would have a completely different situation. We'd have a separation of powers in the United States. I mean, everything that went down through the 80s, the 90s, uh, we wouldn't have the 9-11s, we wouldn't have the Bushes in power, we wouldn't have the Reagans in power, we wouldn't have all the different... Uh, different fascist groups uh, taking over America. I think that it would be a, 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 it would be difference between day and night. Well, uh, Brent Holland, uh, thank you so much for this, uh, and I wish you well on your trip down to Dallas for the 50th anniversary. Now, in attendance, uh, watching your documentaries will be uh, none, other than, none other than Oliver Stone and the man who played Garrison, Kevin Costner, I understand. That's right. And Jim Mars will be there, too. And I'm looking forward to sharing a beer with Jim. Uh, a very funny story. When he came on my show, I said, Jim, give me five minutes before showtime. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. He said, I've already got mine, except mine has a head on it. That's Jim Mars, <laughs> folks. Yeah, that sounds like Jim. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's terrific. Thank you so much. And quid pro quo, I'm going to have you back on my show, too, my friend. I appreciate that. Brent Holland, JFK assassination from the Oval Office to Daly Plaza. Appreciate your time. Nelson Thal, as always, well, we close the book. And uh, 
always appreciate your uh, your insights and and uh, as always I, I give you credit I mean you're the one who led me down this rabbit hole it's and it's all your fault it's <laughs> thanks Richard you've been just a gem it's terrific opening up people's minds hopefully they'll go read the books and get into it and start asking questions give us a title of that book that the one that farewell was... America by James Hepburn uh, coup d'etat by Edward Lutwak uh, rebel magazine premier issue the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination by May Brussel and anything follow Dave Emery Sherman Skolnick and the other researchers all right Nelson thank you my thanks to Tim Spreen back next week with Michael Cremo talking about Archaeological anomalies. Has man walked this planet for millions, perhaps billions of years? We'll find out. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.